Good afternoon. Thank you once again for joining me. Julian Campbell here. We've got another interesting show lined up for you this week. A bit later in the program, we'll be looking at our tips from Steve Jobs, and today we'll be looking at uh, the importance of knowing your customers. We're also talking with Brett Gleeson from the Business Growth Centre about email marketing. He's just come back from a seminar on that. But right now, we're going to have a chat with Rebecca McKenzie from Baker Love Lawyers about protecting your intellectual property. Good afternoon, Rebecca. Good afternoon, Julian. Thanks for having me on your show again. Thank you for joining us. Uh, and of course, it's a very important subject, intellectual property. I suppose we really need to understand what it exactly intellectual property is and, and some of the types of intellectual property. Uh, sure. Julian, the best way to describe what intellectual property actually is in a general sense is to say that it results from someone using their mind or their intellect to create something new or original. What can then flow from that is how to protect the rights attached to the ownership of such property and how to then enforce those rights. Um, setting up a business or maintaining a business gives rise to a variety of intellectual property issues which should be considered in order to properly protect rights. Um, in Australia, we have comprehensive laws protecting intellectual property, which can exist in various forms, such as inventions, a brand name, a trade secret, or an artistic design, just to name a few. Um, listeners may have heard the terms copyright, uh, patents for inventions, and trademarks, which are just a few of the areas in the field of intellectual property. We'll explore some of those in a moment, but who actually owns the intellectual property rights? That depends, Julian, um, on the circumstance giving rise to the creation of the intellectual property. Um, so the general answer is the creator or the inventor of the material owns the rights. But there can often be a dispute about this and a difficulty can arise, particularly in relation to copyright, for example, where no formal steps actually need to be taken to claim ownership. Uh, there's no system of registration with respect to copyright. And it's not even necessary, Julian, to have that little C and a date written mm -hmm. in order to prove ownership. However, that can assist in establishing ownership and at least act as a bit of a deterrent for potential copiers. Um, another issue that may arise for listeners is who owns the intellectual property in the employer-employee relationship. And the general position is, unless otherwise um, agreed, any intellectual property created by the employee in the course of employment, and they are key words, Julian, mm. in the course of employment, belongs to the employer. But there can be arguments about what is meant by in the course of employment, and this will usually depend on what the employee has been hired to do and whether the employee was engaging in private work. Um, the creator of copyright material might also what's called assign their rights, which means they give up legal ownership to someone else. So the question of actual ownership is not always straightforward. Owners can also what's called license their intellectual property so that others can legally use it, but ownership is retained by the owner. So I, I suppose that one of the ways of, of covering that if you're an employer is to make sure you've got something written in your employment agreement. That's right, Julian, and that's where things like um, confidentiality agreements and just clarifying who the actual owner is of any intellectual property created throughout the course of employment is so important. Well, can you expand a little bit on the items that might be included in uh, copyright? Sure. Copyright protects 
the form of expression of an idea, such as in books and films and music. Um, in the business context, it can, it can also extend to a wide variety of common business materials, which may be relevant to some of your listeners, such as databases and tables and computer manuals, for example. Copyright protects the original expression of ideas and not the ideas themselves, which can be an important distinction. Um, as I've already mentioned, Julian, there's no registration requirement for copyright protection in Australia. So it's the case that the moment an idea or creative concept is documented on paper or electronically, it's automatically protected by copyright. And it extends to 70 years after the person's death, doesn't it? Yes, that's right, Julie, and so, it does. There are different um, time frames in relation to the various types of intellectual property. So for copyright, it's generally seven years. Uh, for things like trademarks, for example, it's ten years. Registered designs, five years. So it does vary. Mm. Trade, trademarks, and you mentioned trademarks. What are they all about? Well, a trademark is a sign, such as a brand name or a symbol, for example, which is used to distinguish the trade source of goods and services. Um, now, there is a system of registration for trademarks in Australia. So once a mark is successfully registered through what's called the Australian Trademarks Office, the owner of that mark then has the right to use, to license or sell that mark. And, and this type of intellectual property can be very important for business um, as a logo or a particular branding can often lead to a great deal of goodwill associated with that business. Um, what's interesting, Julian, is that trademark protection can also extend to things like colours, to sounds, to scents, uh, such as in fragrances. Uh, now, if listeners are interested, um, they can go to a website called ATMOS, and that stands for Australian Trademarks Online Search System, and they can do searches for various registered and pending and lapsed marks and brands, and on that website you can find all sorts of interesting marks, such as celebrities' names and well-known brands and products that have been trademarked. Um, the bottom line with trademarks is that it is based on registration and priorities. Um, but however, some listeners might be interested to know that some marks, even if they're not registered, can have some protection due to prior use, for example, of a particular mark over a number of years. I would, however, always recommend registration to just have an added level of protection. And just finally on trademarks, I'll, I'll just add that some people think that if they have registered a business name or an internet domain name, for example, for their business and their website, that they have automatic trademark protection for that name. However, that's not the case, Julian. They need to mm. go that one step further. And, and I think they need to also realise that it's really, these days, not as expensive as it used to be. No, it's not, Julian. There are different fees applicable for um, actually applying to register your trademark and then it, once that trademark is accepted you then have to pay an additional fee um, and there are also different fees for different classes that you might like mm. your trademark registered in and there are a variety of classes so the more classes that you want your trademark registered in um, the more expensive it is but it is quite manageable. Yeah. Just uh, while we're still talking about trademarks, when you actually have the uh, trademark granted you can put the little R in a circle meaning yes. it's a registered trademark, yes. the, the TM really doesn't mean anything, does it? That's right, Julian, and that's another area that does cause a bit of confusion. If someone has a mark and, and, they, and they 
they're trying to say that that is their mark and that they own that mark. They can put the TM after it, but that means it's not registered. Mm. So once, if they then go that step further to actually have it registered, then that's when the little R is placed after it. So there is a difference there. And it is important to go that next step to registration just in case there's an issue about who actually owns the mark. And if you get in first, then you've got certain priorities and that sort of thing. So there is that distinction there between having the little TM or the little R after the mark. Well, what are some of the other areas of intellectual property that uh, the listeners may have heard of? Oh, sure, Julian. Um, there's a system of registration for what's called patents. Now, that's a right that is granted for a device or a substance or a process, for example, that is new and inventive and useful. Um, relevantly to business, the coverage for patents can also extend to things like business methods or business systems, such as a plan for managing an organisation. Um, there are also intellectual property rights for things like circuit layouts for computers. Um, there is protection for certain designs which can be a shape or a pattern that is new and distinctive and those designs can then be registered Julian. It's a massive area as you can see mm. um, and as you mentioned before that's where it can be very important to have confidentiality agreements and details in employment contracts when we're looking at the employment context in order to ensure that there's proper in protection for employers relating to the use and the ownership and that sort of thing for intellectual property. Um, for example, trade secrets that relate to the process of manufacturing or construction of a product, they're so important to protect. Well, Rebecca, just in closing, uh, can you provide a few bits of intellectual property, like a checklist that uh, we can consider? I, I certainly can, Julian. I like to call it a business undertaking, an IP or an intellectual property audit. So here we go. This is what businesses can do. Firstly, they need to identify and record the IP assets. So you can't manage and protect intellectual property without first identifying what you've got. Um, businesses then need to assess the extent of the IP assets within their business. For example, any existing IP or any hidden IP that they may have acquired or developed that they're not even sure whether or not um, it would be granted protection, all of that sort of thing needs to be looked at in order to ensure that if registration is available that they then go that next step. They need to determine the origin and the legal ownership of the IP. Um, they can also assess, once they've determined what IP they have, assess the competitive advantage of the IP assets and make sure that that IP is integrated within the business's overall strategy and operations. This can then lead to creating internal policies and practices to enable for the easy identification and protection and treatment of IP. Um, and then obviously the, the final step is considering the value of that IP that has been identified. So considering what it's worth and assess the benefits that the IP brings to the business. Well, great. Well, thanks very much for your time, uh, Rebecca. Certainly uh, a large area, but a very important area and becoming more and more important. That's right, Julian, yes. Well, we'll talk to you another time. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Rebecca McKenzie there from Baker Love Lawyers, helping us to understand the protection of your intellectual property. And it's 25 minutes past one. You're listening to Business, the Law and You on 2NURFM 103.7. Time to have a crossover to Brett Gleeson at the Business Growth Centre. Good afternoon, Brett. Hi, Julian. Thank you for joining us again. So you uh, have just come back from Queensland and one of those uh, great email marketing summits. Uh, what were some of the highlights of that summit? 
it was an excellent summit, and there was about 350 people there who were involved in um, either as professional email marketers or as uh, businesses who use email. So it's interesting that it's uh, 1994 was when the first email was sent. Um, amazing how, how time uh, flies past. There are three times more email accounts than there are Facebook accounts. Wow. We've talked recently about how the blossoming of Facebook, and uh, but there are actually three times more email accounts than Facebook accounts. The volume of emails sent every day is four times more than the total internet usage every day. Mm. Some 2.6 billion emails are sent every day worldwide. I think I get most of them. <laughs> and I get the rest. <laughs> um, Generally, Australian businesses are not early adapters of new technology. Only about uh, 19% actually ad- adapt to newer t- technology uh, in the early phase, about 44% in the mid, and 37% are late adopters of uh, new technology. Uh, one of the big things that less than 40% of Australian businesses currently have a website. Uh, yeah. Now, that ranks us eighth in the world behind uh, the Swedes, which have 90% of their businesses uh, with websites, and you've got Germany at 84%, and then the UK at 75 Then you come down to the 60% with uh, Spain, Italy, and France, and uh, we're coming at 39%, would you believe? So um, we're, we're way behind the rest. The good news is that we're ahead of the Kiwis on 32%, yeah. so uh, not all is lost uh, yet. But the, the big thing is that um, the businesses that have a website... Um, do better, are actually performing better than mm. those that don't. Uh, and as business operators, they are more optimistic about the future. So there's two critical factors, and uh, so hopefully that 39% of Australian businesses that have a website will actually improve um, because what's happening is that two-thirds of Australians are actually researching their purchases online or actually are shopping online. So we've got two-thirds of Australians using the technology but only one-third of the businesses actually having uh, their technology for them to use. So that's a, that's a big gap, and we need to um, get more businesses online because people are not going to, start, are not going to stop using the, you know, the, um, yeah. the technology. They're going to, that's going to increase from two-thirds up well, to you know, sort of 80%, 90%. With uh, all of those uh, emails being sent every day, though, what, what don't businesses do well? Well, they go for what's called the SNU, the... Uh, sorry, the, the uh, QNU, the quick, nasty, and ugly. Um, so they send out uh, emails in the hope that they will um, will be effective. And the uh, general rule is that they are not effective at all. Mm. In fact, they're annoying, uh, and uh, more people are annoyed by lots of emails, as you said before, at, uh, that you get there are that are quick, nasty, and, and ugly. Um, they're often sent to the wrong person, particularly when they're aimed at, at a business. They're sent to the, the wrong person. Um, when people unsubscribe, which is one of the actions you can do when you get annoyed uh, from emails, uh, only 10% will resubscribe. So once you've damaged your reputation, you have damaged your reputation, uh, and it damages the whole business's reputation, not just that bit about uh, that um Emails. So, um, uh, yeah, so, so people are doing it wrong by sending out too many, uh, sending out ones that are just uh, ineffective, basically. Uh, and, uh, and, and actually, a lot of spamming is happening. Uh, businesses still, it's over a billion emails every day that are sent out that are actually spam. And spam is, it simply means that it's unsolicited uh, emails, so you have to get people's permission uh, to send them an email where you want to try and uh, you know, sell something to them.
to them in that sense. So, yep. so we've spoken about what they do negatively. What, what could we do in a positive way to make emails more effective? Because, as you said, two million a day and 90% of what I receive is rubbish, so I just click yep. them off. What can we do to make them more effective? Well, I think people have actually got to step back and think think about what they're actually doing and, and making sure that what they do send out um, is effective. And, uh, and, and so it's a balance between too many and not enough. For some people, if you send out three, that's one too many. For some people, if you send out one, that's not one, not enough, because they like a reminder. So it's that balancing between mm. sending out too many... One of the rules is there should at least be a 48-hour gap between your emails. So if you're sending one out and you want to send a reminder, you should wait wait at least 48 hours. So you can probably people will do that better. Um, the title is very critical. You've got to get a nice punchy title to capture people's imagination. If you don't, then often that's one of the critical decision processes is they look at the, who it's from and the title, and then they'll make a decision whether they want to open or not. Um, and the title also can push push it into the. Uh Garbage bin too. Um, yes, it can. Yeah, yep. certainly with mine. I, a lot of mine goes straight into the spam. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they can go that way as well. So you've got to be a bit uh, clever about that. Uh, having a clear message um, and considering it from the receiver's perspective, not from your perspective. So you might be trying to sell something, uh, but then actually want to buy something. So uh, the, the idea is, is sell, you know, send it out to give something rather than try and sell something and. Uh, um, one of the things is, is, you know, establish your profile um, more accurately uh, as to you know, your professionalism and your passion. That should all come through uh, and try to build a relationship rather than just send something out uh, like a letterbox drop type thing. There's no, there's no building of a relationship in it. So it's really critical that uh, emails be used to, um, to a part of a strategy that builds a relationship over a long period of time. Uh, and you do that by giving not by trying to sell. Mm, excellent. Well, thanks very much for your time, uh, Brett, and it sounds like an interesting uh, summit. Next week, we're going to have a chat about uh, researching our opportunities. We will. That sounds uh, like a good thing to do. Yep. I'll talk to you then. Thank you. Right. Bye-bye. Thanks, Julian. Cheers. Brett Gleeson there from the Business Growth Centre talking about uh, e-marketing, and, yeah, with all those emails out there, we've got to make sure our message gets through, so we do need to use it but in the right way. Well, time to have a look at another little tip from uh, Steve Jobs. And uh, as we know that uh, he uh, founded the, uh, or co-founded the Apple Empire, and uh, uh, he was ousted out for a few years from the company. uh, And uh, then he was brought back because actually Apple was close to bankruptcy. And uh, back in 1977, he uh, was formulating his important speech to relaunch the company. In the weeks prior to the Boston speech, Jobs had asked 100 people of Apple this question. Who is the largest education company in the world? Only two people answered correctly, Apple. The company was hands down the largest supplier of products to the education community. Apple accounted for a full 65% of all computers used by teachers. According to Jobs, if people within the company did not know or appreciate their core customer, then it would be impossible to create new products to meet customers' needs. In addition to the market education market, Apple was dominant computer tool among creative professionals in the publishing and design fields. So Jobs cited the fact that even though Apple's market share at the time was only 7%, 
Apple accounted for 80% of all computers used in advertising, graphic design, pre-press and printing. 60% of all internet sites were created using Macintoshes and the creative types were clearly an important customer for Apple. So he set about focusing in on those customers initially and finding out what their needs were and making sure that he was targeting exactly who his customers were, which I think is a very important lesson for businesses to look at. Do we really know who our customers are? Do we really know where we're selling our products to? So we may only have, as Apple did, 7% of the total market share. But if we've got 60 or 80% of, of a particular niche in the market, what great opportunities are, there are to keep them involved, keep talking to them, and as Steve Jobs said, find new products to suit their needs. And he certainly set about doing that, and uh, we saw uh, the great comeback from Apple over the uh, subsequent years from 1977 onwards. Well, thank you for being with me for the last half hour. I hope you've enjoyed the program. We've spoken with Rebecca, Rebecca McKenzie from Baker Love Lawyers about protecting your intellectual property and how important it is when you've devised things to make sure you've uh, protected it, especially the copyright and the uh, trademarks. And Brett Gleason has given us a, a review of the email marketing. Next week, we'll look at government, a, prog- a government program that will help you start your business with Shanae Buckley from New Hunter Business. We're going to chat with Brett Gleason from the Business Growth Centre about researching your opportunity. And, of course, we'll have some more ideas that will motivate you and improve your business. I'd love your company at the same time for business, the law and you. Until then, have a safe and prosperous week. And, as Oprah Winfrey once said, when your life is on course with its purpose... You are most powerful.